Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. It's almost obvious, uh, but, the, but that experience, like you, you just forget in these moments of what the basics are. So you need these reminders and these practices to get you there. The practice in this moment is something that we've been taught all our lives in our tradition, right? Like if you really want to see yourself in relationship with other people, if you want to see divinity in other people, like the best way to do that is to serve them. And that helps you reduce your own obsession with yourself um, and your and your ego. And it helps you connect with the people around you. And that's exactly what happens for me in a moment where otherwise I just felt totally lost. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Simran, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Of course. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited for this. Uh, it is my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. Uh, you have a new book out called The Light We Give, which is all about Sikh wisdom. And, you know, it's it's funny, despite being Indian, I think that when I read this book, I was surprised by how little I knew about Sikhism, despite having Sikh friends. And um, I just absolutely love this book. Before we get into the book, uh, I wanted to start by asking you, what birth order were you and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you ended up facing with your life and career? <laughs> it's a good question. So I, I have three brothers. I'm number two. And we're from top to bottom. We are five and a half years apart. So we're all really close in age. Um, part of what that meant to be number two is uh, my older brother, who's 13 months older than me, um, was constantly paving the way for us, uh, which I know I learned later was annoying for him because he would fight for stuff and, the, and then we'd all get to enjoy it. But But also it meant that I... I was paving the way for my younger brothers too. And so I, I also felt the annoyance of like, you know, fighting my parents to go to the school dance. And then by the time it's uh-huh. my younger, bro- my youngest brother's turn, like there was no question, right? Like that kind of thing was probably the most, <laughs> the most annoying. Um, but I think the other, the other thing that I think in terms of uh, being number two is uh, I, I really got to uh, experience the closeness of what it meant to have siblings um, at that age and felt like the this sort of 
protectiveness for my younger brothers, especially. And I still feel it actually, um, where, you know, at home we would fight and I think you're supposed to, but then when you're out with people, like you always have each other's backs. And that was, that was really like a key part of our relationship that hasn't, that hasn't even really gone away at this point. Yeah. It's funny because I always, I, I'm the older uh, sibling, like I'm the oldest. And I'm guessing if I talked to your older brother, you would probably be like, yeah, someone got away with murder in comparison to what I got. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I was, I was really annoying. I love getting in trouble like that. They used to call me the troublemaker. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think you're right that if you, if you said this to my older brother, he would, he would say the exact same thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny because I think the stereotype of the middle child is always the one that's sort of neglected. And, you know, it's like either you're not the baby, you're not the, the you know, the first son. Uh, Do you ever feel any sense of like, I, you know, struggling to be heard? Growing, growing up, at least in, in like in terms of siblings, not really. Um, maybe part of it was like I liked sliding under the radar um, and people not knowing what I was doing. Like our, our parents were really involved growing up. And so like any opportunity you got to, to not be noticed seemed like, seemed like you get away with something. And so that's probably, that's probably part of it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I never felt like there was, at least in our household, this, uh, this struggle to get attention because um, it, it, it was the opposite. It was like uh, so much attention that it was like, we were always looking for opportunities to get away. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because like when you mentioned, you know, you know, the, the thing with the school dance, I remember her thinking, you know, my sister telling me this story when she was a freshman, my dad drops her off like two blocks from a party that she's going to. And she's like, yeah, dad thinks I still go to cake and ice cream parties. And I'm thinking to myself, if I had done anyone near a party with alcohol when I was in ninth grade, like my parents would have basically never let me leave the house again. And she got exactly. exactly. Like, I remember she had a party. She came home from Berkeley. Uh. And she came over, you know, a weekend, I think it was homecoming weekend. And she told a few friends to come over and like 150 people showed up at my parents' house, <laughs> you know, smoking pot in the backyard. drinking. And she literally told my parents, go upstairs, I'll take care of this. And then on Sunday, she went back to Berkeley. Now, like, I would have been like in so much trouble if I, I had pulled that, that stunt and she just got away with it. Yeah, yeah. In trouble or murdered? I don't I don't know which one would come first, but uh yeah. I, I feel like I wouldn't have lived to tell that story if it was if that you was know, my I guess. <laughs> Um well I think that you know the thing that really struck me most about your story it, it was that it was so parallel to mine because we both grew up in Texas. Um, you know, and both of us grew up in, in Texas. Maybe you've probably had more exposure to Indian communities than I did, but I can tell you for damn sure. Like you definitely felt like an outcast as an Indian kid in a place like College Station, Texas. Um, what about you? I mean, did you like from reading the book? My sense was that it was very clear that you were definitely not somebody who just blended in. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to talk to because so so often, you know, I live in New York City now. It's it's diverse. There's people of all backgrounds. Like even even when I say like. Yeah, my life is my life was different and I looked different where I was growing up. Like so many people have a similar kind of story that it doesn't even feel all that unique at this point anymore. And and sometimes I meet people like you where they're like, I grew up in not just in Texas in the eighties, uh, but in college station. I'm like, oh my God, that must have been so different. Even though oh, I, that, that's that's as far away as it gets, man. <laughs> yeah. I remember going to college station when I was in when I was in college actually going to visit my friends at AMAP. Um and and it just felt 
so different from San. I mean, one of the things I can say about San Antonio is, although it's not, you know, a place where there were many South Asians when I was growing up, there were a lot of brown people. I mean, there were, there was majority Hispanics. Um, and so, you know, part of that experience meant uh, that there were people who looked somewhat like me, even if they weren't wearing turbans. And then I got to College Station. It was probably one of those shocking moments where you feel like you got put into a movie set or something. And I, and I was walking around with my friends and being like, oh, there are there are no people of color that I'm seeing. And I, I really feel like a like I'm sticking out like a sore thumb. And so, yeah, I can't even imagine what that must have been like for you and your family growing up. Well, so, you know, we moved from Edmonton, Alberta, where we knew hundreds of Indians. And I remember for the first like month and a half, my mom thought every Mexican person was Indian. She was like, oh, that's all it's Indian. You're <laughs> friends with her. Like, yeah. Her name is Jessica and she's Mexican. <laughs> that's so funny. And we had, we had in some ways the, the opposite experience in San Antonio where, you know, I was born and raised there. And so my parents, my parents were aware of, uh, of the ethnic and racial makeup of the city, uh, but other people weren't aware about who we were. And so often uh, the, the reverse would happen to us where people in grocery stores would come up to us and just start speaking Spanish. You know, they'd see our brown skin and assume <laughs> we were Mexican too, and they'd start speaking Spanish and then we'd get in trouble for, for not being fluent in Spanish. And they'd be like, why don't you, why don't you respect your heritage? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a different, different kind of relationship over here. So as far as career advice, was your parents' career narrative like the typical Indian kid narrative, doctor, lawyer, engineer? Um, you know, not not really, and and especially not later. Um, you know, they they wanted financial stability for us, but they were pretty open to what that would look like. Even in college, when I said I wanted to be a journalist, um, they were they were for it. Um, I think I think the real challenge for them was I ended up choosing a career, a, a, a trajectory that they knew nothing about. And it was really hard for them to imagine what a career would look like. And, and that, that for me was also, I mean, to be fair to them, like I had no idea what the career path looked like. Like no one I knew uh, had done what I wanted to do. I didn't even fully know what I what what it would look like to be successful uh in in the world that I was entering into so yeah they they weren't they were open to anything in fact they really appreciated any kind of uh community service that that to them is like the best and most important thing you can do so that's what they really pushed us towards um and so they were happy that I was going down that route I think it was just scary for them to not know will I have a job once I get out of school yeah so what, you know, it's funny because I, I remember sitting at a bar with a Sikh friend. He came out to meet us and I, I remember just sitting here. I was like, I realized this is a really stupid question. I was like, what are the, the general principles of Sikhism? And, <laughs> you know, I was like, I should, you know, you'd think I would know this as a Hindu person or an Indian person. And, you know, having been in Berkeley where there are a ton of Indians and been an officer in the Indian student club, but I was not. <laughs> But I was kind of, you know, I was kind of stunned to find that like nobody had actually taken all of this and put it into a book that made it, you know, accessible, uh, you know, Western form. Because I'd always thought, you know, when I read this book, I, I remember going to my agent saying, you know, somebody needs to do that. What Ryan Holiday did for the obstacle is the way in Stoic wisdom. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Done for Sikh wisdom, and I feel like somebody needs to do that for Hindu mythology. Um, and she's like, is this really a project you want to undertake? She's like, you realize it's going to take years and years of work. I was like. 
where she was like, do you just want another book deal? And I was like, like I got to be honest with you. I don't really know that I want to do that. But I mean, there's so many timeless lessons in this, but uh, which, you know, that, that raises the question, what prompted you to want to write this book? Like, you know, what led to this? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. And in some ways, like, this is the book that I'd always wanted to write. I mean, growing, growing up in Texas, as you can imagine, people coming up to you all the time and being like, why do you look like that? Why do you have that thing on your head? Why do you speak that language? Like, it was, there was always this desire of like, if I could just be in a world where people knew who we were, then we wouldn't have to constantly explain ourselves. And it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't, a lot of people are 
uh, talking about being exhausted of constantly justifying their existence and uh, doing the emotional labor of like sharing their stories like that. That hasn't I, I understand that, but it's never really been something I've struggled with. Like I love that stuff. It's more like recognizing the consequences of people not knowing who you are and seeing how damaging our cultural ignorance can be like, you know, hate crimes, hate crime murders, like this stuff really literally ruins people's lives and takes away their loved ones. And so that to me was like, it's something I recognized early just because of our lived experience. Um, and so, and so I would look on the bookshelves and see there was nothing about our tradition or our community or what we were about. And so I, 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 I resolved early that I wanted to write. I think, I think what, really changed for me over time. And this was especially after Trump's election uh, was recognizing that actually it's not really the information um, and the, the literacy itself that helps us to become more compassionate to one another. Uh, it's actually the, the connection to one another's stories. And that's, that's where the real sort of shift came for me from, you know, giving, giving people the basics and, and the facts about who we are into trying to trying to share it through through my own personal storytelling of what my life is like as a Sikh in America and how it's different from other people's and how it's similar and, and the challenges we face and how we can move forward together. Yeah. Well, you know, rather than starting at the, the very beginning of the book, there's a quote that I wanted to start with in the book that I remember just really stood out to me. You said, this is what it's like to be a Sikh in modern America. People notice me wherever I go, walking down the street, playing Frisbee in a park, and most definitely at the airport, everyone notices me at the airport. And, you know, the funny thing is, despite being Indian, I can absolutely say that's true. Like, I notice when sick people are in the airport, not because I think they're terrorists, simply because they're noticeable. Um, and, you know, I remember, you know, before we, we hit record here, I was telling you uh, the story about, you know, this friend I had when I was in ninth grade, he moved from India nicest kid uh you know he was super smart you know and we became very good friends and um and you know he 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 was the only kid in that entire school so we didn't even live in college station we lived in brian which is the you know sister yeah i know brian yeah brian is even more redneck than you know i mean honestly they're very nice people in brian uh and you know but it's even more friday night lights than college station and yeah i think you know i told you the story when I remember, you know, we went to India for summer vacation. I came back and there was a, a bookstore called Hastings. I don't know if you remember those. They used to be in Texas. Um, it was kind of like Barnes and Noble before Barnes and Noble. And I see him outside of the place and he's like, hey, Srini. And I'm like, who is this? And then he's like, hey, it's Taran. I'm like, oh my God, you cut your hair. And I kind of thought for a moment, I was like, wow, the pressure, you know, to conform or, you know, the amount of sort of like just, you know, torment he must have dealt with to get to that point. Um, so, I mean, I'm guessing there are people who choose to cut their hair. We don't even know it. And then there are people like you. So you know, what do you think leads to that? And why is that? And what do you want people to know more importantly? Yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, I appreciate that story. I think, you know, part of, part of what I've learned um, in my own journey in this world is, um, you know, it's especially true in the context of religion. It's so easy to judge people for their decisions or their actions or whatever it is that they do. Um, and, and often, like the way that a lot of people said no in the Sikh community and in other religious communities too, right? Like people make decisions and you don't know 
what leads to those decisions. You don't know people's lives. You don't know the details of what their struggles are. Um, and so it's really easy to look from the outside and be like, oh, that's wrong or that's messed up or whatever. Um, and, and I will say now where I am uh, personally, as, as I see stories like that, and I'm like, man, it's so sad that people live in a place where they feel that kind of pressure, where either either you conform to what society expects of you or your life is going to be hard and it's going to suck. And it does for a lot of people. And that's not just on the basis of religion. It's on the basis of gender, sexual orientation, or all these things that make us who we are. And so that's my, that's my immediate reaction to a story like that. It's just like, man, what if, what if we didn't live in a world where we were unsealing ourselves, how we could fit in and instead, like we could just live as we are and, and really move forward instead. So that's, that's one, one immediate reaction. I think the other is to your question uh, and your reflection. Um, it's absolutely true that um, there are many Sikhs who come to this country um, wearing turbans and having uncut hair and, and they decide it's not something they want to do anymore. And, and there are others who come uh, without their turbans and, and don't have uh, the practice of not cutting their hair. And they decide, you know what, I'm going to start living into my identity. So it's actually been a really interesting uh, experience for me to see these, the diversity of these stories and these experiences. I just heard from a friend of mine and I, I, we were sitting and talking on Sunday. He was telling us his story, which I'd never heard of. He grew up in Ohio. There were no six there. He was, he was into, um, like he was, he was wearing a turban. His family wore turbans. Then they moved to Connecticut and he felt overwhelmed by the pressure of wanting to fit in and he cut his hair. And then the next year he started to, to regrow his hair and wear his turban again. And like, there's that too, right? Like you make one decision and it's not final and, and you make another decision and that's life. So, um, yeah, I, I guess what I would want people to know as I'm, as I'm sort of sharing these stories, I'd want people to know that there is no single journey that any of us has, right? Like everyone's experience is different. Uh, we all have different challenges we meet in our lives. We make different decisions. Um, and, and more important than anything else is, uh, that as we, as we meet people and try and understand them, uh, judgment, judgment has no place, right? It's, it's not helpful. Uh, we are in no place to judge one another. And at the end of the day, we don't know what's in people's hearts and, and what drives their decisions and their, and their choices. And so that's, that's become a really important aspect of my own living. Yeah. So one thing I wonder, these are sort of silly questions, but you know, how old were you when you first put the turban on? And you, know, I mean, you must need a decent amount of hair to actually start wearing that thing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I was probably three or four. Yeah, it's that's exactly the issue, right? Like you, well, I'll, I'll tell you in in kind of a humorous way, but also because it's true. Um, until your hair is long enough to put in a turban, the the standard, and there's no like rule about this, but it's kind of just what people do, and it's what my mom did too. Um, your hair, your hair is in pigtails. Uh, so, so your hair is long enough to put in a turban. So I was three or four. Uh, you know, there's no real self-consciousness about it because you're too young, but definitely people uh, confused my gender because of yeah. my hairstyle. And so like, that was, that was annoying to me, you know, as a four-year-old, like your gender identity is really, really important, right? It, mm -hmm. it really shapes your consciousness. And so I remember that being annoying. Um, but yeah, it was, it's only when your hair is long enough and 
you know, three or four is usually the case for most kids. Um, yeah. And uh, and up until probably almost until middle school, uh, my mom used to tie our turban every morning. Uh, like she would comb our hair. It was, she would braid it. She would put it up for us. And then she would tie the turban on our heads. And so that was like a really, um, it, it's it's probably one of those things that I never really thought about as being unique for us because it was just our normal lives but other people are like oh wow that's like such a such a commitment such a you know daily routine that you have that nobody else has well i you know the reason i asked that question is because i think you 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 kind of alluded to it i was wondering at what point do you start to feel you recognize your own self-consciousness about this like for you oh it's early and and i think you know as i i thought maybe it was earlier for me because i was in texas and what I'm realizing now that I have kids of my own and they're young um, is that uh, kids are more astute than we, than we give them credit for, right? Like the, the studies now show that kids are able to identify racial difference before they're one year old. And so the, the, the awareness is there. Um, and then the self-consciousness is there. And, and as we know about kids too, like kids are egocentric right in in the sense that like they see the world through their own eyes and they experience the world not through what happens across the globe like they're not worried about what's happening in russia they're worried about what's happening around them right they're in the center and so if, if we understand it from that perspective then then it's pretty clear to us that like yeah of course a kid who is entering into preschool and noticing the kids around him and they're noticing him, like, of course, they're going to ask questions, right? Like my daughter, who's in preschool, asks me questions about difference that she sees, whether it's on the basis of race or accent. She was asking about accents the other day. And so I, I started noticing it as early as preschool. Um, I would say, I mean, I, for a long time, my, my impression of it was, well, it just kind of happened. It never really bothered me. It was just kind of normal for me, which... I think is, is, is maybe something I developed later. Um, but part of, part of what I've been reflecting on is, well, if I can vividly remember those experiences where people, for example, pushed me out of the boys' bathroom and said, go to the girls' bathroom, uh, or things like that when I was super young, um, yeah. then probably there was something more profound that I was feeling about my own identity as being different. Uh, and wishing that it, that I wasn't, and so uh, yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to to really pin down your memories because you know who knows how accurate they are sometimes. Uh, but right. definitely, some some of these feelings are coming up from me when I'm in preschool, like really really socializing with other kids for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I know that there are several experiences in the book you you actually reference, which we'll get to here in just a second. Um, for people listening and then, you know, for my interest, what is the significance of not cutting your hair? Like, why do you do it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because there are a lot of different reasons that six will give. And so this is, I'll, I'll just sort of share my own with the intention of, you know, here's, here's, here's me. I'm, I'm not speaking for everyone else, but, but for me personally, um, you know, the, the tradition is that, um, in, in the 1600s, uh, as the tradition is being formed, uh, there's, there's a really important moment where one of our leaders is being executed um, by the state. Um, and 
And as he's being killed, um, no, no one really steps forward uh, to stand up for him. And, and, and the, his successor is really bothered by this. And he says, you know, what good are your values if you're not willing to stand up for them and stand up by them uh, in moments of difficulty? Like, uh, like this, is just, this is just theory, right? This is, these are just ideas if you're not living by them. And so he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a unique appearance where you can no longer hide. Um, you can no longer hide when, when moments get tough, like you're going to stand out in a crowd. And so there's, there's this, what we describe and how we understand it is, it's a gift, right? The, the guru, Guru Gobind Singh, gives us the gift of our identity. And one aspect of that identity is uncut hair. Uh, and so for me, the, both of these two pieces uh, complement each other really nicely, right? On the one hand, the hair and other aspects of our identity are a gift. Uh, from our guru who we love. And so we cherish them just as we would any other gift that we get from somebody we love. Um, and it's, it's almost like a marker of our identity that demonstrates to the world and reminds us individually too, uh, that these are, these are our values. This is who we are. Uh, this is how we're going to live and, and everyone is going to um, stick with it, no matter how difficult our moments or our lives get. And so that's, that to me, uh, are, is, is the, the sort of two piece, uh, puzzle that comes together in, in explaining, uh, what the hair means to me personally. Well, I want to talk about your first experiences with racism, because I think that you and I will both have very, you know, sort of similar stories here. But one of the things that you say in the book is this was my parents' general response to the racism we encountered to ignore it, to let it go, to turn the other cheek, to be the bigger person. We talked often about the importance of maintaining composure in these moments. This advice served me well for most of my youth. Walking away from conflict ensured that we wouldn't get into baited into fights, sucked into negativity or distracted from the things in life that truly mattered. So, I mean, I know you, you referenced the soccer game. I remember that very specifically. Um, and I'm just curious, like, what were your earliest experiences with racism, particularly growing up in Texas? Because I mean, I remember just hearing some shocking things uh, in the back seats of my parents, you know, friends, uh, parents' cars. And I think we were very fortunate because Indians, for the most part, were the model stereotyped as model minorities. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I think, especially before 9-11, um, people in Texas didn't have a strong conception of, um, of Muslims, of Sikhs, of South Asians. Like, if, if there was a reference point, it was probably either... Um, Indiana Jones, which I don't think was, it was a great one, right? Yeah. Like these are people who are uncivilized and eat monkey brains and, and we should conquer them. Um, or, or maybe it was, uh, Johnny Fives, uh, what was it? Short circuit. The Short circuit yeah. Um, so like there's, there are these like small, small touch points, but for the most part, people, people seeing us didn't know what to make of us, right? They, it was, it was almost like there was a blank slate. Like these people are different. We don't know them. We don't get them, but at least we don't have a strongly negative feeling about them aside from, you know, subconscious xenophobia, et cetera. And so the, the, the racism that came our way was, was less 
um, tightly scripted than it became after 9-11, right? Like after 9-11, everyone knew what the stereotype was and how they were supposed to see us. But until that point, like I remember, you know, for, let me, let me say it in this way. Um, when my dad first came to this country in the seventies, and that was during the Iran crisis, um, people saw him as Iranian. Uh, they called him Khomeini or Ayatollah, right? Like that was their conception of who he was. And then in the eighties, when I was growing up in the early nineties, um, we were involved with Operation Desert Storm. And so all of a sudden we became Iraqi, um, Saddam Hussein. Like that's the kind of thing people said to us. And so in, in a way, it's the story of what we mean when we say race is a social construct, right? Like depending on what is in people's minds, that's going to affect how they react to you when they see you on the street. And, and so for the most part, I guess what I'm trying to say is like people didn't really have strong, as strong of reactions then. Like people would call us Aladdin or genies, um, like, you know, those kinds of things. But it was, you know, whatever was popping up in pop culture. Um, yeah, it was, I guess, I guess part of it is to say like it was kind of all over the place. I mean, I remember when my brother played college basketball and traveled around the South because he was in the Southern Collegiate Athletic Conference. Like sometimes people would call him racist names and say he was bin Laden or Al-Qaeda. And sometimes they would say he looked like Jesus and like be really excited to meet him. Right. So like it really, it really depends on the, the eye of the beholder, I guess. Yeah. And your brother's jersey is in the Smithsonian. It's in, it's in the Smithsonian. I don't know if it's up there anymore. I hopefully someone took it down. Uh, I'm a little jealous of him still. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been up in this Smithsonian. Wow. Well, and so let's talk about one other experience in particular that struck me in the book. And this is when you were teaching, you had this experience in which you were like, you know, apparently somebody found something on Twitter and, and weren't you asked to resign from the university? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a fun one. I mean, that was right when I started my dream job. So, uh, that was a scary one for me. Um, yeah, the short, the short of the story is, you know, this Muslim kid in, near Dallas takes a clock to school um, that he had made at home. And because he's Muslim, um, he was, they, the teachers and the administration, I mean, everyone across the board, uh, it was a systemic failure, perceived him as a, ter- as a terrorist and, and arrested him, detained him illegally. I mean, he's a kid. I think he was like 11 or 12 at the time. And, you know, I, I felt the pain of it. And I was teaching Islamic studies in Texas at the time. And so I, I felt the desire to do something. And, you know, the easiest thing often to do is to post on social media. And so I did. And I posted a picture of me holding a clock just to say I'm, I, I brought my clock to work in solidarity or some, something simple like that. And it happened to be, you know, one of those like moments where, uh, a random message goes viral. Like my, my tweet went viral. It was all over the news. I mean, I was getting phone calls and whatever all night. I mean, it was, it was just like, you know, something that you can't predict or control or whatever. Uh, and then I get to my office the next day and the school was saying that they were ready for me to resign because, or that I, they were getting calls, um, from people in the community saying that I should not be teaching at, at the university and that I didn't, you know, I was giving them a bad name and that I was 
racist and hateful and all these things. And so, yeah, it was it was a very strange position to be in, uh, you know, a few months into my dream job. I think that that, you know, makes a uh, perfect sense when talking about some of the principles of Sikhism. But one of the things that you say uh, before we get into the principles you say racism always discriminates, but rarely discerns. Uh, what do you mean by that? To explain that for people listening. Mm, I, I mean, like part, part of my experience in this country, and I think this is true for a lot of folks who deal with racism, is that you always get a short stick uh, when you're on the receiving end of racism. Um, and the people who are discriminating against you don't actually care about who you are. And there's something there's something nice about that in that it's easier to not take it personally once you realize that somebody's somebody's being nasty to you because they're racist and that's something in their hearts and you haven't done anything wrong. Like that that kind of frees you to understand that this is not about you and you don't have to be so upset. But also it the 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 sort of underlying piece here is people who are being racist towards you, they don't they're not actually making any effort to get to know who you are as a person. They're, they're really focused on who they think you are and, and who they perceive you to be. And so that's, that's what I mean by racism always discriminates, but rarely discerns. Like n- nobody's actually out there who's being racist and saying, let me actually look in to you as a person and understand you. And, and, and that's, that's the real shame of it. Yeah. Well, let's get into some of the the principles of, of this wisdom. You talk about this concept of Ik Onkar, and you say Ik refers to the oneness of the world, the connectedness of reality, the intermingling of creator and creation, the integration of all we know, the wholeness of our being. The second component, Onkar, refers to a dynamic divine force that permeates every aspect of a world. The most relatable way of understanding this concept is to consider it on an atomic level. If everything we know in our physical world is composed of atoms, then think of each atom as being infused with the same divinity. There's no escaping this force because it's infused it to everything we encounter and experience. So talk to me about, you know, sort of how these principles apply day to day in our lives. Because, you know, it, it's funny as I recognize a lot of these sort of self-improvement teachings. I'm like, anytime I read about religion, I think the thing that I'm always struck by is how much overlap there is between the basic foundational principles of morality in almost every religion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, you know, that's that's part of what I was hoping to do in this book was was sort of introduce some of Sikh teachings uh, in ways that are universally applicable, which I, th- I think so much of spiritual wisdom is. I mean, that's part of what makes it so powerful is that you know these 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 teachers and thinkers and philosophers lived centuries ago, and they happen to have answers to questions that we're all struggling with today, right? Like. How do I, how do I fight hate with love? Like the best among us have been talking about that for centuries. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think there's quite a bit of uh, overlap and insight for us to draw uh, from, from spiritual traditions writ large and our uh, cultural uh, move away from them is, is actually our own loss. Right? Like I, I believe that deeply um, with, with regard to these these ideas and, and how they fit into a practical day-to-day uh, experience. I, I think that's exactly what I have found to be so powerful. Right again, like ideas are just ideas until you put them into practice. And and here, uh, and especially with this 
with this concept of interconnectedness, uh, ikonkar, as we call it uh, in Punjabi, as, as you said, um, there, there's something really, in, in many ways, countercultural uh, about this approach to living, which I think addresses part of what is the source of our suffering uh, in America, in the West, in our world. And, and, and the, the easiest way for me to explain this uh, as, as, an, as a daily practice is to perhaps speak about um, some of the challenges that I faced with it. And, you know, one of one experience I've had recently um, that I share in the book is about dealing with COVID and our, our family, we live in New York city. Um, we were at the center of the pandemic when it first emerged. My wife is a doctor, one of the hospitals, she was serving patients uh, and we got it pretty quickly, uh, pretty immediately. And, and as we're sort of navigating this crisis, one of the things we are thinking about constantly is what is, what is the appropriate amount of risk we're willing to take here? Right. So like, I'm like, let's get out of here. And she's like, let me serve people when they need it. And, and that's, that's a real conversation. Another constant conversation is, is the fear of, Hey, we need to, we need to take care of ourselves. If we're choosing to be here, um, let's, let's focus on what we need to do to survive again. Totally, totally appropriate. Uh, glad we did that. Uh, I think everyone should, uh, in a situation like that. And it's, it's critical for our survival. But then, then part of the experience becomes I am so wrapped up in the challenges that we're facing and so concerned about what might happen that I start to become obsessed with this, right? Like even when we've sort of gotten through the brunt of it, even when we've sort of figured out what we need to at home to be safe, I st- I'm still like trapped in the cycle of focusing on whatever it is we need to survive. And, and it's, it's, it's crippling, right? Like anybody who has dealt with anxiety or depression can understand this. Like when you go through moments like this in your life, and for some people it's constant, um, it's, it gets really hard to see your life in perspective, right? In relation to what else is going out in the world. And so for me, the, the experience was the, when, when you feel like the world revolves around you, um, the experience is how do you bring these principles back into focus that you are able to see the world for what it is and get your life uh, back into context. And, and for me, uh, and, and from sick principles, the practice was with serving other people. And it sounds so simple, so obvious, right? Like, of course, when you go out and meet people and understand what their struggles are, uh, you, will, you will have more perspective on your own. Um, Mm -hmm. and so it's, it's almost obvious, uh, but, but that experience, like you, you just forget in these moments of what the basics are. So you need these reminders and these practices to get you there. The practice in this moment is something that we've been taught all our lives in our tradition, right? Like if you really want to see yourself in relationship with other people, if you want to see divinity in other people, like the best way to do that is to serve them. And that helps you reduce your own obsession with yourself um, and your and your ego, and it helps you connect with the people around you. And that's exactly what happens for me in a moment where otherwise I just felt totally lost. Yeah. 
I think, well, it, it's funny because I, I, you know, I was telling my parents that I was going to be talking to you and we were talking about suits and they're like, there's two things you should know. One, they're incredibly generous and they're some of the hardest working people you'll ever meet. And they say, you know, anybody is welcome in a Sikh temple and can go there and you'll also get one of the best meals you've ever had, which I, could, <laughs> I couldn't help. But, you know, I, I laughed when you wrote that thing about the rotis and for pizza over rotis. I was like, yeah, that's our story. I was like, what kind of Indian prefers pizzas over rotis? <laughs> that's hilarious. You know, at, at Gurdwara this, this weekend, actually, it was the first day of Sunday school for the kids for the semester. And, uh. And they had regular lunger with with the whole meal. And then they had uh-huh. pizza for the kids. And all the parents were like sitting there rolling their eyes, including the sting light. And then I ate the pizza, of course, because I had yeah. to choose that <laughs> any day. Uh, well, we were, we were all rolling. I remember even in our Hindu temple, one of our, uh, you know, one of our aunties was like, yeah, we need to get a pizza oven for the kids. And I'm just like, what kinds of kids are these that they're entitled to a pizza? Like we have to eat what was served. Nobody ever said, hey, you know, you want some pizza? We're going to make pizza. Exactly. No complaints. Yeah. No, no complaints. No special treatment. Yeah. yeah. Kid these days. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I you know, I, like I, the reason I, I wanted to bring that up is because I think that, you know, we, we see a Gurdwara from the outside and all we see is, you know, this place that seems intimidating. But I, when I realized, because I think I'm trying to remember, I think it was up in the mountains of India. I went to a Sikh temple and had, uh, you know, lunch there. And like anybody is welcome here. It doesn't matter if race, religion, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's part of, it's one of my favorite things about the tradition. You know, this, there's an idea of radical equality, which I think, you know, of course our world could learn from that right now, especially like given, given where we are and how we're treating each other, right? Like in our tradition, the teaching is everyone is equally divine. There's, there's no place for discriminating. There's no place for hierarchies. Uh, and even in the scripture, like it'll say over and over again, like, you're not better than anyone. Get over yourself. You're not worse than anyone. Like empower yourself, right? Like we have to find that right balance. Uh, but one of the things I love about the, the, the sick, uh, philosophy, and I, I write about this a little bit in the book, um, is that it's it's not just it's not just so so let me say it this way in 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 the american context today our approach to activism is to identify all the things we disagree with and just call them out right like that's what that's what call out culture essentially is like that's what we're referring to like find out what you don't like and and then let everyone know that you don't like it which is fine like there's a place for that but the the sick theories, like their their approach was much more than that. They said, find the things you dislike or you disagree with, and then build a solution. And yeah. and this tradition of eating people, like that's that's about dealing with poverty. That's about bringing people together and having them understand uh, their social relationships with one another. And it's also about de- destroying hierarchies and ensuring that everyone is treated as equal and sees themselves as equal. And I think like there's something really beautiful about building something that's, you know, now lasted over 500 years and really is continually um, challenging the, the norms of, of division that are, that are plaguing us. I mean, whether here in America or in India, because it's everywhere. So I, I want to ask you about uh, fatherhood being a parent. Obviously, uh, this really stands out to me because my sister just had a baby last night as we're having this conversation. Uh, and one of the things that you say is viewing the world through their eyes for the first time, I realized that love is an unstoppable force, one that gives 
life to hope and inspires rightful action, no matter how hard it is or what the consequences might be. You know, I mean, I, I don't have a child and the closest thing to a child of my own I've experienced was last night. And, um, it, like, it's kind of amazing how immediately, like I was just texting my sister. I was like, tell my new nephew when he wakes up, I can't wait to meet him. And I love him now. Yeah. 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 Um, so tell me about this, like the experience for you of, of fatherhood, you know, particularly like the first time you, you experience it, because like I said, I only have sort of experienced it peripherally or, you know, through other people. Yeah. 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 Well, it doesn't sound all that different. And actually you, you said to talk about the first time I experienced it. And I'm, you know, one of my, one of my embarrassments about the book, I mean, maybe it's not an embarrassment, but something along those lines, um, is that I, I write about the first time I became a father. Um, and then, and then I don't write about the second time. And so I'm sure one day, uh, if my second daughter reads <laughs> the book, she's gonna be like, what the hell? Why don't you write about me? So yeah, well, I mean, every kid has started. And you never see the TV show <laughs> Parenthood at the very, you know, the very, the guy's like, he was like, you know, that's what parents do. They screw their kids up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's, it is, it is true that there's, um, you know, I would find it really annoying when parents would say to me, like, you'll, you'll know it when it happens. And I was like, whatever, like it's, it can't be that special that like, you're, you're, everyone's just talking about how great it is or how special it is, but you like, there's a way to put it into words. And anyone who's like skirting that is, is like overblowing it, right? Like they're, they think they're cooler than they are. Um, and then, and then it happened to me, um, right? My daughter's born and, and I knew she was going to be born. You know, we were preparing for her to be born. I knew that she was, um, like e even like the 30 minutes before she was being born, like I was in the room. But then there's something that shifts suddenly, or at least it did for me, and maybe it does for other people. Uh, but there was this remarkable shift in experience for me where I was like, what, what, the way I describe it in the book is like, you think you know love, and you do to an extent, but it's your, your experience of love just expands so rapidly and so drastically that it's almost like you never knew love at all. Right. Like it's, it's just a completely different level. And that's, that's now I understand. Like if you have an experience that like, how do you tell somebody who's never tasted chocolate, like what chocolate tastes like? Like you can't explain it. It just, you just have to experience it. And so now when I talk to parents, I, 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 I try not to be annoying about it. Um, in the way that I felt annoyed when other parents would talk about it, but, I, but I do understand that there's something inexplicable about this feeling that, that you can't know until you know, right? And that's that's part of it. Well, I want to finish with one final part of the book. Um, you know, and this this really struck me particularly because you know what is this this show? It's a story in which we use language to capture emotion. We tell you know stories. You say that language cannot fully capture the depth of human emotions. Words can help us approximate what we mean in terms of common experiences, but they'll never carry the full force of a feeling. And then you go on to say, because we each have different experiences, we all use and understand language differently. The word turban may mean something different to me than it does to you. I've worn one every day since my childhood. And for me as a sixth, the word turban connotes royalty, dignity, equality, and justice. On the other hand, most Westerners hear, Westerners hear the word turban and immediately think of terrorism, violence, extremism, and hate. Language is not uniform. How we understand words is informed by our own perspectives, perceptions, and yes, prejudices, which, you know, I think the thing that is, is so striking to me about that is that 
you know, terrorists for the most part are not like, I don't know any sick terrorists, like based on all the terrorist history that we've seen, none of those people are sick, are they? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the, what I would say is every, every religion, every ideology has its own, can be, can be weaponized, right? And so there are six who use Sikhism to justify bad actions, just as you see in any other religion. And so I don't, I don't want to let anyone off the hook and just say like, right. well, there's no such thing. Um, it happens and it happens in Christianity and it happens among Buddhists and it happens among Hindus. Like, it happens, right? And it's a real thing. Um, but, but I do think there's something really interesting here about, um, the way that we consider. I mean, here's, here's a way to think about it. So much of what's in our heads, uh, we take for granted as if this is how people always viewed the world or this is how the world is for everyone. And, and it goes back to like our inability to see each other for who we are, right? We're so focused on being right and, and thinking that we have all the right answers that we forget that other people have different experiences too. And so to me, part of, part of what I'm trying to open up in this book and even in this point about language, um, is to say, actually all these things that we think are universally true, uh, and there's only one right answer. There's actually, there's actually more to it than that. life is more complicated. Uh, life isn't just black and white and, and it's okay to be to be open to other people's experiences and ways of living uh, without judging them for it. And I, I think that's something we're really not good at as a society. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, I feel like I could sit here and talk to you all day about this because this is just such a uh, profound and, and deep concept to really, you know, understand each other in a way that we don't before. And I think that, you know, like I said, I mean, despite being Indian, I was shocked at how little I knew about Sikhism uh until i read your book and i thought you know this is so well done uh thank you so i want to you. finish with uh one final question which is how we finish all of our interviews to be unmistakable creative what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable um <laughs> to make somebody or something unmistakable um man i i, I don't think it's possible I, I don't think it's i don't think anyone can be perfect and I think the um, the cultural expectation that that we can get there, or or that perhaps that we are or closer than others, is actually a real problem. And I think I think opening ourselves up to our fallibility as human beings creates more openness and more respect for one another. And so, yeah, I am. Um, I I love your podcast, and I'm also anti unmistakable. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, that's the beauty of, of the, you know, the question is that there is no one definition. Of what it exactly. Is. Exactly. I love that. You really articulated that beautifully. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us, to share your story and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, the book, your work and everything that you're up to? Um, well, I spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, so my name is Tara Simran, S-I-M-R-A-N. Um, and then I'm also on other social media pro- platforms. Uh, you actually got Cameron as a name on Twitter. Uh, it took a it took a long time, but um, but it happened. All the others I didn't get. Um, so I'm yeah. sick cross S I K H P R O S. Um, and one day maybe maybe I'll be maybe I'll be Cameron on those. But for now, I'm sick cross. 
So that's where I live. That's where I hang out. So yeah, would love, would love to connect with anyone who's interested. All right. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.